from a hat. Kind of a crazy idea for us to compile all these different sermon topics, throw them in a hat, and have you all pick out of them what I'll be preaching on the week ahead. But I've had a lot of fun with the series. Have you guys had fun with the From a Hat series, huh? Have you enjoyed this? Have you enjoyed it enough that in the future to do a From a Hat part two? All right. In a little bit, we will do that. It's going to be awesome. Now, this week, we're pulling an audible. You see, last week, our friend Laura pulled out the hat, Jeremiah 29.11. And that is a powerful passage. That is, uh, uh, it's, it's for I know the plans I have for you, plans to bring you, uh, uh, plan, uh, I know the plans I have for you, prosper you and to bring you peace. Thank you. I was like, I'm missing a part of it, the prosper you part. Here's the thing. We just spent some really good time on that back on May 9. And so I was sitting with the text. I'm like, maybe I can come at it from a different angle, but I'm so close to when we just preached on it, I had nothing new, frankly. I mean, spirit will work and spirit will do its thing, but I guess I was a a faulty vessel at that time. So I reached out to the person who submitted that question. That individual actually submitted too. And so we're going with the other one that person submitted. So today we're looking at the book of Ruth. Whew. I am excited about this book. We're going to jump right in. We're going to read from Ruth chapter 1. If you're wondering where it is in your Bible, it's just about a fifth of the way in or so. And it's nestled between the book of Judges and the book of First Samuel. It's kind of fascinating, in fact, this little account that is just nestled in the beginning here. Let's read from God's true word, starting with Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, also known as Israel, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, those in Judah and and Israel, by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And that's where we will pause in the beginning. Let's wrap our mind around where this account takes place. You see, this is during the time of the Judges. This was a dark time in Israel's history where people lived to please themselves and not God. It's during these dark times where we find this account of a singular family, of their misery, of their emptiness. You see, all the males of this one Israelite family leave Bethlehem and die in Moab, leaving Naomi without a male relative to care for her. Now, as we go through this book, it's important for us to understand the desperate situation that Naomi and her two daughters-in-law find themselves in. First, we recognize that she has a lot of heartache here. She loses her husband. She later loses her sons. 
And as if it's not hard enough being a widow, having to live without your loved one, in the ancient world, there was almost nothing harder than being a widow. For these women, they were often taken advantage of or ignored. They almost always fell into poverty if they didn't have people that brought them in and supported them. In fact, that's why God's law made it so that the nearest relative of a woman's deceased husband should care for his widow. But Naomi had left Israel, had no family in Moab, and didn't know if any of her family back home were still alive. That's the desperate situation we find Naomi and her daughters-in-law in. Now the next part will kind of set the rest of this book in motion. The focus, it quickly shifts from Naomi to Ruth, though they both play an important role throughout this tale. You see, Ruth, she's from Moab. She's a Moabite. Now Moab and Israel, they did not get along. You want to know why? Well, Moab uh, had oppressed Israel. That's a problem, right? You're not going to get along if one country oppresses the other during the time of the judges. But it kind of reveals the desperate nature of the fact that, uh, that, that Naomi's husband was willing to take his whole family away from the fam- famine into the land of Moab. Now, Naomi's preparing to return home. She heard of God's provision back home. So she thought, well, the famine's over. Maybe, maybe I can make it there. But then she has her two daughters-in-law. Remember, they're from Moab. Their birth parents are in Moab. Any type of connections they might have are in Moab. And if they were to go into Israel, they may not be welcomed well by those in Israel. So Naomi is in this desperate situation. But in the midst of her desperate situation, she she shows the depth of her character. While she's deciding to return to Israel, she encourages Ruth and Orpah to stay in Moab. Start your lives over, she tells them. She encourages this because she's putting them first. Their needs first. She believes it is likely much easier and more likely for them to find care and support in their homeland of Moab than they'll have in Israel, where she doesn't even know if her own family is still alive. So this is a selfless act. But when we read it, it's easy to just say, okay, she's just sending them back or this or that. But it's very selfless because Naomi was highly unlikely to find herself a husband. You see, she, at the text tells us later, she's past childbearing age. And the harsh truth of the reality is that in ancient times like this, If you were past a certain age and you were a widow, you would likely remain a widow the rest of her days. And because of the difficult nature of that time, she would likely have to fend for herself unless there were those there to help her. But instead of bringing these women along who could be her meal ticket, she says, you need to go back. That will be better for you because they might catch the eye of a gentleman's suitor still back in Moab. And if one of them gets married, then that family would be able to take care of them. And Naomi was trying to separate from that. 
So in the midst of her desperate situation, she shows the depth of her character. And that brings us to a point today where perhaps you've heard or perhaps you've said character counts. Oh boy, does it ever. Character counts more than our circumstance, our credentials, or our competency. You see, character counts more than we can ever know. The truth of this permeates all throughout the entire book of Ruth. We see it in Naomi. We see it in Ruth. Later on, we see it in Boaz. We're not, it's not a foreign concept that crisis reveals our character or temptation reveals our character, or that desperation reveals our true character. When those things come and we are stripped, everything else is stripped away, how are you going to act? What are you going to do? What decisions are you going to make? What words are you going to use? So a question for each of us that we must consider when we see Naomi and her making a character-driven decision, how's our character lately? See, our character reveals how deeply we hold to our values. That when all else is stripped away, that if we have character, if we have godly values, we may still stand tall. So are you a person known for your character? A person of integrity, a person of conviction. A helpful guide for us to do some own self-reflecting is to look to the fruit. Where's the, where there's fruit, there's faith. And Christians, we really have a straightforward guide to growing our character. Straightforward doesn't always mean easy either, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Because we're called to grow in Christ-likeness by growing in our faith. And our faith is revealed in the fruit. So how full is your fruit basket? Are there a million little annoying gnats floating around your fruit? That's what I want your life to resemble. That overflowing fruit basket where you have all those fruit flies and you buy the wrong dish soap so it won't kill the fruit flies. You guys ever have that? Yeah. And you know the fruit I'm talking about. You see it on the screen. It's about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. How full is your fruit basket? Now, Naomi revealed in her very desperation her very true character. And so does Ruth. You see, on their way back to Israel, when Naomi pleads with Orpah and Ruth to go back to Moab, trusting that they have family there, trusting they have a better shot there, Orpah, and not to any fault of her own, I mean, her mom misnamed her Orpah when she was named after Oprah after all, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But seriously, it's not a fault of Orpah choosing to go back. That was the sensible thing. She shows in the text a deep love for Naomi. There's no doubt about that. She does the sensible thing. She heads back home. But Ruth doesn't. And this is probably the most well-known passage from the book of Ruth. It's Ruth 1, 16 through 18. After Naomi had said, uh, go back to your people and to your gods, go back with Orpah, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Because where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, 
my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, that's kind of like almost an understatement, right? Oh, she seems pretty determined to go. She stopped urging her. What a beautiful, beautiful display of loyalty. She is, Ruth is hitching herself to Naomi's wagon. Whatever your fate in life, mine too. We are in this together. Anytime you've been in a hard situation or a hard circumstance and someone comes alongside you and says, you know what? Let's do this. We got this. Think about it. It's not, hey, you got this in your hard situation. It's, we got this. I am hitching myself to your wagon, and we are going through this together. What a comfort. What a grace. What a gift in those moments in our lives. And that's what Ruth is doing to Naomi. And when you hear her reply, don't for a second think that God is not actively at work behind the scenes here. There is no doubt God and his spirit is pressing and moving. This was a major turning point in Ruth's life. She had two paths in front of her. Neither of them guaranteed an easy way. One of them had a support net and was seemingly safer and maybe a little bit more clear. And then the other was to go with Naomi. It was completely unknown. It came with incredible risk. She could go back, a choice for herself. She could, and to safety, or she could go to Israel, a choice to love and live sacrificially, not knowing what will come from it. And perhaps you see where I'm going here, that our lives are filled with moments just like this, where we are faced at an impasse. We have a hard choice to make. Sometimes there's an easier way. Sometimes there's a safe way. Sometimes there's one that, oh yeah, if I go this way, it will obviously, it will be a better shot of taking care of myself. But sometimes there's a harder way. Sometimes there's these unknowns that scare us. And sometimes it's the way that calls us to sacrifice. Now in Ruth's case, her heart made her answer clear. She would not abandon Naomi to fend for herself. When you're faced with a crossroads moment, when you have no idea what to do, what do you do? When you have no idea what to do, what do you do? There's a lot of good options. You may, you know, seek wise counsel. We have any pros and cons list writers out there? You may write the biggest pros and cons list of your lifetime in those moments when you don't know what to do. What else do you do? You talk to your friends. Maybe you put up an Instagram poll. <laughs> what do you do when you don't know what to do? The very best thing is remembering that we have a guide, that we have a way to know the way. That way is Jesus Christ. The best thing, the best step to take is a step towards Jesus. When you don't know what to do, move towards Jesus. You think you have two ways in front of you, there's always the third way, and it's the way towards Jesus. You'll have hard decisions to come to you. You'll have questions that will need answering. But first and foremost, we must rest in the presence of the God who knows you and loves you and cares for you and has a plan and a purpose for you. 
to rest with Jesus, to give him your burdens, not just to pray about it, but to fully reconnect with God, to fully recommit to God. Because when we move closer to God, the answer may not come into complete focus, but what matters will rise to the surface. And things start to become a little more clear. God will guide us. Be it ever so small of a step, he will guide us because he is our path. He is our guide. His spirit is in those who believe in him and is actively at work trying to bring you towards his path for your life. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You move toward Jesus. Now Ruth, interestingly, she may not have known God yet at this point. The text gives us no clarification on in her marriage if, if she started to believe God or not, but she does say to Naomi, your God will be my God. And Naomi says before that, go back with her. Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her suggesting that perhaps she doesn't even know the one true God yet. But the choice that she makes was a choice towards love, a choice that propelled her forward to God, because God is love, and we can follow her guide as well in the crossroads of life to move toward God, trusting he will make the path straight. Now, the rest of the book of Ruth— it plays out in almost a Disney-like fashion. Naomi, though she's deeply sorrowed, she even tells her family that it's still alive back in Israel. Call me, I think it's Mara or something. It means bitter in Hebrew. She wants them to see that the, the depth of angst and sorrow that's within her. That's the only time she's referred to in that. Every other indication of her name is Naomi, meaning the family did not buy into it, say, no, that's not who you are. That's where you are, but it's not who you are. And so even though she was bitter, she returns home with Ruth. Both of them show incredible resilience. Ruth and Naomi's family, they don't let her steep into that bitterness. We see Naomi support Ruth. Ruth, in turn, supports Naomi. A gentleman named Boaz then comes into the picture. He's the third main player in this account who furthers displays integrity, godly character, and a loving heart. Ruth and Boaz end up marrying. It's quite an interesting little, <laughs> little way that it happens. You should read it. Uh, but it assures that Naomi and Ruth would be cared for. And Ruth, huh, by God's grace, becomes pregnant and has a child. A child she names Obed. Obed, who just goes to show later, has a child named Jesse, who goes on to have quite a few children, including David. And instead of ending the story of Ruth, this true story of Ruth, with a happily ever after, it ends with a genealogy. Ha! Just when you thought you were safe. We're back to last week in long lists of names. No, but how cool is this? Because all of a sudden, after reading four chapters of a, a seemingly nice little story of a family that happened years ago, we get the bigger picture. Oh, this is how Ruth connects to God's great story. This book is significantly different than the heroic ups, ups and downs of the books that border it. 
you have judges, and then you have the tale or the account of the kings beginning in 1 Samuel right after. And there's this tiny little four-chapter book nestled in between that. It's the first short book of the Bible, and you could almost miss it. You could just kind of, almost just kind of like scrape it away and say, okay, that's, that's nice, but what does that do? The stakes of it appear to just be the difficulties of one small family. Surely not the sake of the world depends on what happened in this book until you see how it's all connected. See, everything in this account comes off as ordinary or normal. But that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Think of this whole series we've been able to go through from a hat where we first looked at how God blesses the poor in spirit. Wow, you can find that here. Or think of angels when we talked about how angels are at work all the time in ways we can't even know or fully fathom, but we trust God is always actively at work and nothing will stop God from achieving his purposes of redeeming the world. And you can go, oh, I can kind of see how that's playing out here. Or perhaps when we wrestled and we grappled with the hard and unanswerable moments of Job and finding a life of faith without all the answers. Okay, I can see that here. And just like last week, when we looked at the genealogy of Christ, we can see God's unending faithfulness throughout the ages. There would be no David without Ruth. This account is of great importance. We read Ruth, we see how God is constructing his grand story out of the small, the seemingly inconsequential stories of everyday people. We're reminded of the call that whatever we do, whether big or mighty, small or mundane, we are called to do it to God and for his glory. He will bless it and he will multiply it. This little story, it's intentionally framed at the, at the, with the larger storyline of the Bible on each end because it shows us that God is at work through the big and through the small. In fact, Ruth and her life and the challenges they face are the normal challenges we all face in our lifetimes. We all have to wrestle with loss and death. We all have to wrestle with moving, <laughs> and the complications of moving from one place to another. We all have to wrestle with lack of financial resources or hard decisions with no clear answers or the complex nature of family responsibilities. And yet, through it all, we see that God is weaving a story of redemption out of all of the details. The book of Ruth encourages us to view our day-to-day -day lives as a part of God's bigger plan for our lives and his kingdom. God is at work in your life. In the big moments, in the small moments, we have an invitation to play a part in the same life-changing, world-shaking, kingdom-coming, unstoppable plan of our mighty God and King. May God do his mighty work as we put on the character of Christ and move toward Jesus and let God work in the ordinary to achieve the extraordinary. May it be so.
Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Ruth. We thank you that all those years ago that she lived, that she made decisions, she ran towards you, and she honored you. God, we can never fully understand how active you are in our lives and our world, but we do trust and believe that you are active and at work right here and now. Continue to meet us in our place, Lord, whether it is the hard moment on the road when we have a decision to make, whether it's in the grieving, in the wake of the loss of a dearly loved one, or whether it's after the joyful celebrations of of new life and hope and healing that comes only from you. May we have eyes to see you at work through it all, God. Your love is greater than we can fathom. And so we offer you our praise. Though it's never fit for a king, you look at it and you say, I can take that. And with that, I can do even more. So we say thank you. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.